Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where, where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Amen. Now, I realize in approaching this text that it most likely occurred maybe months, maybe years, maybe as much, much as three plus years after Jesus was born in that manger. And, and there's some reasons why I say this, and I hope not to mess up your, your Christmas story and your little major scene too much. Um, but in verse 11, if you take a look at it, you'll see that Christ is no longer in a manger at this point. Where is he? He's in a house, right. And the word that's used here to describe Jesus isn't the word that would be used to talk about a baby, but a word that would be used to talk about a small child. Then you go over to verse 7, and you see that, the, that, that Herod asked the Magi for the exact time that the star had originally appeared to them. And by this, Herod is able to do some approximating as to exactly how old this child, this king. You understand Herod the Great wasn't so great. He was a horrible man, even having his own family members and one of his wives murdered. Okay, not such a great guy. His intentions were not good here. But by this, he's able to know the approximate age of this child, this threatening king. And then you get over to verse 16, and we didn't read that today, nor will we read that verse next week. And you see there that once Herod realizes that he's been outwitted by these magi, because they didn't return and tell them, him exactly where this child was, he orders the deaths of all Jewish baby boys two years of age and younger, probably as a result of his assessment based on the time frame in which he gave them. Now, isn't that interesting, folks? When you think about these deaths at the birth of Christ by Herod, an event that actually happened, and we think about these horrible murders that have happened in Newtown in this Christmas season, and we think the world has gone mad, and yet we still see evil reigning even in this day 2,000 years ago, an event that actually happened. 
But regardless of when these events took place and actually happened, they are considered to be a part of the Christmas events, and therefore they do have application to us today. Commonly, the, the appearing of the Magi is referred to as the Epiphany. Epiphany. There's all kinds of epiphanies, especially in the Old Testament, where Jesus appears in the Old Testament. But this epiphany is the first time that Jesus makes himself known to Gentiles. And that's who these Magi are. They're Gentile non-believers. This event is traditionally celebrated on the church calendar on January 6th. the, the day of the epiphany marking the end of the Christmas season. So I'm jumping in the gun a little bit here and approaching it this Sunday. But again, it has great value for what the Lord wants us to hear this morning. Now, we don't know much about these magi. I'm going to mess your story up a little more if it hasn't been messed up already. Uh, typically, we like to think that there were three of these guys, and the reason for that is because there were three gifts. Truth is, we don't know how many there were. Okay, we, we, honestly, we honestly don't. Uh, the term magi that's used here, uh, we like to think of them as being kings. You know, it kind of fits for our glory story a little bit. But they were more likely scholars who studied the stars, and this will really mess you up, astrologers. Now, please don't take that wrong. This isn't to be any kind of affirmation of the kind of astrology that we find in the newspapers today. But these men, these magi, played very key roles in the prophetic order because it's in their story that we find Christ's kingly origin being affirmed by these non-Jews. His messiahship, we find that here. We find here the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Christ would be in Bethlehem. That would be the place of the Messiah. And fascinating enough is this piece that because they were Gentiles and not Jews, they highlight the faith and acceptance of Gentile dirty Gentile non-believers as opposed to the hostility of the religious Jews. Oh my goodness. I'm just always fascinated when I read this account and I consider how many Jews, especially those Jewish scholars and those religious leaders who consider this, they lived in the vicinity where the Christ child was born. They knew the scriptures about the coming of Christ. They knew that... They, they were devout in their faith. They were devout in their religion. They were intently looking for and expecting the Savior even during their own lifetime. And yet they don't have a clue about the incredible events that are unfolding around them while these irreligious stargazers somehow catch a glimpse of this phenomena in the heavenlies and by that phenomena are able to know exactly what is going on. To accurately interpret it to be a sign of the coming of the king of the Jews and by this And by them going on their journey, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew exactly who it was they were going to see. And I think there's some valuable application right here. First application this morning, if you haven't grabbed some already, is this. Let us not get so caught up in some form of religion or some ritual of worship that we miss out on the greater thing that God wants to do or the greater thing that God may even be doing right in our midst 
and somehow we can't see it. God, help us. But besides the fact that this story is so relevant to the Christmas events, it is very key in helping us to understand worship. What can we learn about worship from these magi? And so I want to take this week and next week to, to just look at this. Notice in verse 2, upon coming to Bethlehem, it says, Where is the one, these magi want to know, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and what's those next words? Have come to worship him. There can be no doubt about it. This is a story about worship. And right from the front, we see that these guys know exactly what they're doing. They know who, exactly who it is they're coming to see. And they know exactly what their response to this object of worship needs to be. We have come to worship him. Then we go down to verse 9. And in verse 9, we see that after they had left Herod's palace, they're once again guided by the star that had, had led them thus far. And this time, when it stops over the place where the child was, and they know this, the Bible says they were overjoyed. Now consider this. They've been traveling two years, maybe three years, maybe more, putting aside all their normal activities, all their normal duties in pursuit of this king that's what they're doing they're they're spending a, a a great price in order to do this and now they're honing in on the object of their worship and they get really excited so i think there's an application here when we consider worship and that's this what is your attitude when you consider coming to worship what was your attitude this morning when you considered will i take time to go and worship today were you overjoyed or were you something less? In fact, I want us to read together Psalm 122, verse 1. And this is the attitude of a sincere worshiper. Would you read this with me? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Yeah. And verses like this and, and the story of the Magi shows a degree of preparation, it shows a degree of investment, it shows a degree of anticipation on the part of the worshiper. This wasn't some haphazard decision that said, well, maybe I'll go and worship today if I feel like it, but, but then again, maybe not, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do today. This is a definite act of their will that says, I want to gather with God's people and worship him because today may be the day that God moves in an incredible way. And besides that, I want to gather with God's people because somehow it spurs me on in my faith and I find encouragement in doing that. But even beyond that, I want to gather with God's people and worship because it's the right thing to do, and he is worthy of my worship. And not just my showing up, as though I've done something great in showing up, but in approaching him with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and even presenting myself physically on his altar before him, set apart for his sacred services. You see, worship is always better when we prepare for it. And it wasn't all that long ago that, that people would definitely, you know, take some time the night before to prepare for Sunday morning. For, for some people, it was bath night. 
And that was the only bath some of us got all week was Saturday night. Huh? Yeah, some of you remember that. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Yeah. We'd set out the clothes we're going to wear, you know, and, uh, and, and we kind of learned what shoe polish was then. Got to polish those, get them buffed up, get them ready because we're going to worship. But, you know, more important than, than what we do physically to get ready, more, more importantly than taking a bath or, or the clothes we're going to wear or what else we're going to set aside to bring, us, bring with us to church in the morning, we need to prepare our hearts. And when you look at the Jewish week, it's really helpful in this because in our, our week, our, in our calendar week, a day begins, you know, after midnight, the morning into the night. But on the Jewish calendar, the day would always begin at sunset the night prior. That's when the Sabbath would begin because that's when the day began and therefore it gives us the thought of making preparation the day before for what we're going to do the next day. But, you know, it's okay. We don't need to get in bondage about, you know, Sunday doesn't necessarily have to be the day of worship. But it's the idea that I'm going to worship God and I'm not just going to scurry in there and then hope that it all comes together for me. But I want to be ready because I want to give my best to God. Let's prepare our hearts. Even at the family table, and I know not many of us sit at meals together and pray together, but, but boy, just to do that, just to sit down together and say, tomorrow is a significant day, or, or, or tonight, when we gather for worship, it's important, so let's stop right now and let's prepare our hearts so that we enter that place ready for what God wants to do. These guys traveled three years getting ready for this encounter with Jesus. Because they wanted to worship him. Is anybody feeling convicted at all? I don't want you to feel condemned. But we need a little prodding, don't we? Yeah, God help us. Going on, verse 11, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, I just want to focus in on these words, bowed down and worship. Look at the words, bowed down. Kind of a redundant phrase, correct? Bow and down. Kind of saying the same thing twice. And that's exactly the way it is in the original language. It's kind of a redundant phrase. This is pipto-peto. But it's kind of undermined when we use the word bow because it means much more. It's a much more extreme action. It literally means to fall, to, to fall down. It's connected to another word that means they flew. So the image that we get here is that they practically dove to the ground at the moment they saw this Christ child. But the word worship is pretty much similar to those two words because it's the word proskuneo from which we get our word prostrate. Right? To be on our faces before God. I mean, if you shoot guns, you know the prostrate position is laying on your stomach with your elbows on the ground so that you're a little stronger in your position for shooting. Kind of gives you a three-point pyramid when you lay on your belly and position yourself to shoot. And this is what this is a picture of. These guys falling on their faces before God. Now, there's a good chance that the second part of that word proskune, kune, is the word from which we get the word dog, 
And the way that it's used here would be a picture of a dog's loyalty to his master and literally a picture of a dog licking his master's hand. And this is kind of the, where we get the idea of, of kissing the king's ring, ring. Okay, this is kind of where we get this whole idea. It's symbolic of, of reverence. It's symbolic of adoration. But get the picture. Here we have this small child, two or three years old, and we have these grown men who come in, and they're paying homage to this child. They know there's something significant going on here. They have no doubt. This is the king of the Jews. This is the one that's been long expected. And I just want to talk a few minutes about this idea of of falling down because it's an idea that shows up again in scripture over and over and over again. In fact, you read the scriptures and you find angels falling before God. You find demons falling before God. You find people falling before God. And then you go over to Mark and there's four situations in a row where, where people are falling before God, maybe in need of a miracle, maybe having received a miracle. You get to Mark 3, and you find there Jesus is healing many. He's casting out demons. When it says a specific demon ran and fell at Jesus' feet, and you know that it's manifested itself in, the, in a person when you read that. And then you get over to Mark 5. And, uh, and, and first off, well, there's three things that happen here in a row. And first off, we find a demon-possessed man. He sees Jesus, and this is what happens, Mark 5, 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his knees in front of him. And I think that's part of the image of this dog licking its master's hand, that it's a sign of full submission. But it's not only demons that are falling down before Jesus. In, in Mark, uh, in, in the same chapter, verse 22, we find a synagogue ruler, a religious leader, falling at Jesus' feet. When it says, this is verse 22, then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little da daughter is dying Please come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed. And then same chapter, verse 32. A woman who has a, a bleeding issue. She can't get to Jesus. She thinks if I could only touch the hem of his garment, somehow she manages to reach through the crowd and just touch him. And, and in that instant, she's completely healed. She knows it. And Jesus knows that power has gone out from him. And so he's looking around wondering, who is this person that's just been touched in a miraculous way? And then in verse uh, 32, it says, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You see, demons fall at Jesus' feet because they know who Jesus is. Religious leaders fall at Jesus' feet because they come to realize they need Jesus' help. They don't have all the answers. And this woman falls at Jesus' feet because she's stolen a miracle and she's not quite sure how Jesus is going to respond to her. And then you come to the end, to the book of Revelation. And here in chapter 7, verse 11, it says, and the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Do you get the impression that somehow 
in the end that everything above the earth, below the earth, and on the earth, coming to recognize who Jesus is, is falling down before him. And yet, we get comfortable with worship. We get comfortable in, in approaching God, and we take it so casually. And, and we've got to get beyond that, that we can't see worship as a song we sing, or a place we go, or some kind of gathering, or some kind of, of liturgy. But we need to see worship as a coming into his presence, and in recognizing who he is. It's a humbling ourselves before him. Yet, yet the reality is, in our culture, is that too often we're expecting God to come looking for us, and we need to know He is looking for us, but that's not enough. Or, like in this last series of events, we put God on trial, and we want God to explain Himself. If you are God, how could you allow this to happen? While at the same time, we're blocking ourselves to Him and saying we don't want anything to do with God. Have mercy on us, and we expect God to, to give us gifts. But wise men still seek him. And that's the reason why we can refer to these magi as wise men. Because they recognize the evidence pointing to Jesus. On coming to Jesus, they recognized who Jesus was. And on recognizing, in recognizing who Jesus was, they fell down and humbled themselves before him. Not for what he would do for them, but because of who he is and who he was. Let's read together Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture the flock under his care. So what about you this Christmas? Do you see the evidence that's pointing to Jesus? Have you recognized him for who he is? And in relationship to him and in his presence, do you live a life where you humble yourself before him or do you have a tendency to slip and to take him for granted? He is mighty God and King. And friends, humbling ourselves to Jesus in the end is really the only wise thing to do because it's the only thing that ultimately affects our eternal destiny. Jesus came, lived for a while. He came to die. He came as a sacrificial lamb. The manger proves it, wrapped in swaddling clothes, the same way they prepared lambs that would be one day used for sacrifices. Jesus wrapped this very same way in preparation that he might go to the cross and at the cross take the sins of the world upon himself, carry them to the grave so that men would have a hope of one day standing before their Heavenly Father. I want to uh, continue this teaching next week, but I want to wrap up. I'm going to read the scripture. I'm going to pray. While I'm praying, I want the worship team to come up here. And, uh, and let's worship him together. This is from Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore God, and that's God the Father, exalted him, Jesus, God the Son, to the highest place. That therefore is there because it's talking about 
he went to the cross, scorning its shame, humbling himself, becoming a servant. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. As I'm praying, I want the worship team to come on up. Father God, thank you today for your word. And thank you for giving us this picture of these magi. Magi who, while the religious people missed what was going around, going on, they were somehow able to recognize who he was. They were able to come to him. And in coming to him and seeing him, they fell down and worshiped him. Lord, we want to know you. We want to see you. We don't want to take you for granted. But we want to fall down in your presence and call you God and King. You are worthy. And Lord, maybe there's someone here today who for the first time is recognizing their need for Jesus. And they're turning today. And they're falling down. And they're coming home. Thank you, Lord, for their coming home. Thank you, Lord, for their transformation that begins today. As they're turning around from going their own direction and saying, I want to learn to do life God's way. All glory and praise to you, Lord. All glory and praise. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Let's stand together.